Still in the book of Romans this morning, we're talking about a generous and humble spirit. So I was reading through the text and looking at where Paul goes from where we've been in the last few weeks, and he pulls these things out. And as I thought about what binds these things together, these traits and the things that he is calling us to, and it seemed to me that it was a generous and humble spirit. It was a spirit of Christ. The spirit of the Christian is really what binds these things and are expressed in the things that we'll be talking about this morning together. A generous and humble spirit. We're in verses 13 to 16 of Romans chapter 12. Hear then the word of God. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered again this Lord's day to be with you, to worship you, to hear from you. We long for you to be at work in our hearts and in our lives. We long to hear your voice and to be more like Jesus and to follow him. And so we pray even now as we spend a few minutes in your word, our desire is to hear you speak, to call us out of ourselves and into grace, into Christ, into Christ-likeness. Oh, make us more like Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Paul is turning here in verse 13 from more of an internal posture of heart. Last week we talked about the rejoicing in hope, the joy and the hope and the patience and the prayer that uh, is necessary for us as we face and walk through this time between the ages until we go home to be with him. But he turns from some of these internal things of joy and hope and patience to face the world in a sense. What does it mean to be Christian, to turn into face and to live in a Christian way, a Christian way of life? He's really answering the question that Peter raises. I love the question. I come back to it again and again because it should ring in our hearts. In 2 Peter 3, he asked the question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God. While we are living in the in-between where he has come and he has begun this good work, but he is coming again and we're waiting for that coming. And and in this in-between time where you and I are called to follow him, what kind of people, what sort of people ought we to be? Well, Paul is answering that question here. Really, the rest of the book of Romans is the closest thing that we have to a manual on Christian living of Christian uh, character and lifestyle. We get pieces of it in a lot of places, but, but Romans is systematic about a lot of things. And so here is close to a how-to. And this morning we're looking at the core aspects of Christian formation. And I do like uh, the, the language of formation. So often we think of learning Christian things and, and we should be educating the mind, no doubt about it. But But it is to shape and to form who we are, how we think and how we feel and how we respond and what kind of people we are. There's a formation of soul that takes place. And at the core of this, this formation of Christian character is a generous and humble spirit. Generosity of heart. Yeah, I was thinking of what what language you hear. It makes me think of bigness of heart. 
right? A, a generosity of heart and humility. And humility allows us to be even more generous. We'll see as we walk through this. And when I speak of generosity, I don't mean just with money. It, it includes that. We should be generous people uh, with what God has given us because He's a generous God. But it's to be generous with all the Christian graces, right? Generous with forgiveness, generous with kindness, generous with, with, with all good things to all people. There's a generosity, a big-heartedness that should characterize followers of Jesus. Here in this text, he speaks specifically about a generous hospitality, a generosity toward our adversaries, a generous empathy, and a generous humility. All of these characteristics, it runs through these verses, 13 to 16, which really here, I think, is, is, is describing, in a sense, a grand opening of our hearts to all kinds of people. Right? That's what he's talking about here. In verse 13, he talks about hospitality, contribute, verse 13, to the needs of the saints and to seek, don't just show hospitality, but seek to show hospitality, pursue the, the showing of hospitality. Now, it is interesting, and I may, you know, sometimes it surprised me as I've studied this now and, and in the past, that that word hospitality, I don't know if you guys are, are um, <laughs> Now I can't even print this bride fan, but you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> I'm not, so he does know. I'm not left-handed. Okay, so hospitality in the Greek that's translated here in most of the places in the New Testament is, is literally underneath it is the philo xenos, philo xenos, which is the love of strangers. Now, we've been talking about love a couple of weeks ago. We talked about philo, phileo, which is the word for love in, in Greek. Philostorge, that love for family and of, of our community. And then philodelphia, or the love of our brothers and sisters in Christ or in our family. And here we get philoxenia, which is the love of strangers, people you don't know. right? And that's what's underneath the word hospitality, literally a love for strangers, for people who are not part of your community. Which is why I say we use that word, and often the way we use it is not the way the Bible uses it. You know, what we usually mean by hospitality is more, something more like a Philadelphia, Philadelphia, a love for our brothers and sisters. And that love for our brothers and sisters, an important part of community, is breaking bread together and being in each other's homes and participating in each other's lives in a sense of hospitality. But biblically, the word for that probably is Philadelphia, Philadelphia, rather than hospitality, which is being translated philoxenia, which is the love of strangers, people who are not part of your community. And so we have that Philadelphia. It's balanced by the love of our brothers with whom we fellowship and, and share meals to, with, is balanced with the love of strangers, people who are not part of our community, who we don't know. And so it's a generosity of heart, biblically speaking, to traveling saints who are in need. Hosting travelers. It was an important cultural practice in biblical times, both in Old Testament and New Testament. And we see it practiced, and I don't know if you've seen those movies where uh, someone comes to stay in your home. It's there in the story of, well, I'll say it's, it's important in, in ancient practice. We see it uh, throughout Scripture, and it's, it's what is talked about in Hebrews 13 too. We know this 
Most of us know this verse. You know, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Right? And so in that verse right there where it says show hospitality to strangers, hospitality to strangers is actually one word. It's the same word, philoxenia. But there, it's obvious to strangers. How else can you entertain an angel unawares unless it's somebody you didn't know who turned out to be an angel, which happened to both Abraham and to Lot in a situation where they hosted travelers. And little did they know they were hosting the Lord and, and his angels at times. Right? And so, but you see in that word, they pulled it out, hospitality to strangers, but that's what the, it's actually one word, and that's what the word means. It's an ancient cultural practice, and it was an important part of early Christian community. John Stott says, hospitality was especially important in those days since inns were few and far between, and those that existed were often unsafe and unsavory places, and so it was essential for Christian people to open their homes to travelers. It was the only place where you can really get a warm place to stay and a safe meal in a, in a context where you could probably rest and feel safe. And there were a lot of people traveling in those days. Traveling in those days was a dangerous endeavor at times. And when you were often vulnerable, when you were out of your community and among people you didn't know. And a lot of Christians had to travel. We see in the New Testament, Paul's traveling all over the place. He's a missionary evangelist. He's traveling town to town. And they expected hospitality. They expected the love of strangers, that when they would come, that the church there would embrace them. They would give them a place to stay and feed them and care for them. Jesus says this in, in, uh, when he sends out the 12 and he sends out the 72 and he tells them, don't bring any stuff with you, but when you get to that town, find a worthy place, someplace that will house you and stay there until you leave. Right? Seek hospitality among those who are in the town. But we had missionary traveling around and teachers and preachers throughout the New Testament. You're reading about that. These people who are traveling around and teaching. You have in Philippians 2.19, Paul says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. You might say, well, Timothy, where are you going to stay? What are you going to eat? Who's going to care for you? And the expectation is that he will be shown hospitality. Travelers of all kinds. The persecuted. We see constantly in the New Testament. It said, if you're persecuted in one town, then go to the next town. And we see that they're being persecuted and driven, it says, in early part of Acts. And they were driven throughout the surrounding areas when they were persecuted in Jerusalem. The expectation was that the churches and Christians in surrounding communities would embrace these people and give them a place to stay. There weren't hotels and inns and there weren't, otherwise you were literally homeless. This is part of, Jesus incorporates it, even as he talks about the expectation and the kind of community that we are to offer to one another, it, it really comes out in uh, his parables of the end and the time of judgment. If you think of it in these terms, in Matthew 25, when Jesus is giving the parable of the sheets and the goats, and he's talking about the different things. You did these things and you didn't do these things. When did we do these things, Lord? And in that list, if you hear it, then the king is going to come and say to those who are on his right, come, you who are blessed to my father. Inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger. I was a Zenos, and you welcomed me. You showed me Philo. You Philo Zenoed me. You, 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 you loved and welcomed a stranger in your midst. 
And it's part of his expectation, part of that thing for which we will be commended for on the last day. It was very important in those days, and I've been thinking about how do we apply this now. And we have the Philadelphia where we host and love each other and are in each other's homes and and, uh, connecting and fellowshipping over meals and such. But how do we practice this love of strangers? I made a list of ideas. You could do with them what you will. But one of them I do think is that we can contribute to the global outreach budget of the church. You can give a little above your tithes and offerings to the global outreach. What does we do with that money? We support missionaries. That money gives them, helps them have a place to stay and to be able to eat while they're in a foreign place sharing the gospel. And one of the things that we're after that's in the scripture and otherwise is for those who are there sharing the gospel in a community not to take from the community. Right? So in other words, if you're someplace preaching the gospel, that there would be Christians that host you so that you don't have to demand money from those. It, it confuses the preaching of the gospel if you ask for money to, from the people you're preaching to when they don't know Christ. It's a different thing when we become part of a community and there's an understanding of the way that God owns everything and, and we share those things in a community. But when you're trying to reach the world, there is this way that uh, the Christian community, if you came to town... We should host, and so we host literally what we do in our giving and the global outreach is we host missionaries all over the world, giving them a place to stay and a livelihood so that they can preach the gospel unencumbered. But we can show it when people are visiting missionaries, traveling friends and families. We've been called upon at different times and coming through town. Can we stay with you guys? And we're like, yeah, come on. You know, bring, bring your kids. Those who are in need of temporary housing, there are times within our community where people are displaced And I think that there is a place for us in a generosity of heart uh, to make room for and provide for those who need a place to stay, those whom God has brought to our door. And so I actually think about it then a little bit in terms of, of, of those who visit our church. It's that welcoming, it's that love of the stranger, it's that welcoming, it's the opening of our heart generously to to those that we don't know who come into our community. Now, we're not literally giving them a place to stay in our house, not usually anyway, uh, but it is that, ex- that, that open-hearted, big-hearted welcome. If they're new, people who are new in our midst, making room for them in our hearts, in our fellowship, in our community, bringing people in. So it's big-heartedness toward strangers, Philo, Xenia, hospitality, but it's also a generous heart, interestingly, toward our adversaries. In verse 14, he says, we are to bless those who persecute you. Yeah, we're to bless them, he says, and do not curse. Do not curse them. Right? We're to bless those who persecute us. That's a hard group to, for our hearts to go out to, and that's exactly what he is saying. We need to be big-hearted. There are people who are going to persecute you, and he says you need to be big-hearted toward them. You need to bless them. The ones who are hurting you, the ones who are doing you harm, are ones that this big-heartedness, this generosity of heart extends even to those who are against us, even to those who are out to harm us. And so he's simply calling us to follow and imitate Jesus at this point, isn't he? I mean, this is something that Jesus both taught and practiced, something he told us to do, and something he said, I've given you an example of this to do it. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Right? Did you hear that list? Your enemies, the ones who hate you, the ones who are cursing you, those who are abusing you. And he says, don't just not hate them, but bless them and pray for them. Right? There's, there's a generosity of heart that even these people that want to harm us, who speak ill of us, who are actively out in a sense to get us, and he says we're to, we're to respond with blessing and to pray for them. It's a big heartedness toward folks who we would think of as adversaries or enemies. And that's where he says, love, philo your enemies, phileo your enemies. Blessing and cursing are opposite, right? He says, those who curse you, you're to bless them. And they, those two things are opposite, blessing and cursing, right? It's wanting to do good or to do ill, right? So we wish health or harm on people in terms of, so they're, they're opposites. And so when they're doing the opposite and wishing you ill and harm, that we are to do the gracious and supernatural thing, which is to love our enemies and to bless them and to pray for them. We're to be a people of blessing, doing good. And he even actually says not just to bless them and pray for them, which is very intangible, but he says actually do good to them. Give them a cup of cold water in my name. Do something gracious toward, do good toward them. Keep a generous heart. Repent of hate and ill will. Repent of a hard heart. Repent and move toward people in love to do good and gracious. This is a timely word in our culture because there's an increasingly anti-Christian sort of movement. Once upon a time, our culture preached tolerance. I'm not saying they practiced it. I'm just saying they at least preached it. Right? They preached tolerance, and often it was intolerant, but they preached tolerance, and, and, and there was a certain amount of, uh, you know, at least on the face of it, for, for Christians and our views certain amount of at least respect and that kind of thing. But we're in a culture that is increasingly hostile to our moral values on gender, on sexuality, on abortion. And tolerance is no longer the word of the day. There is simple open hostility against any who would hold a biblical ethic. The biblical ethic is not just another way of believing or thinking, another moral value set. They see it as actual hate speech. It is labeled in this category that you don't have to tolerate anymore. And so it gets harder. This is easier in a culture that's relatively nice to us, and there are these occasional slights, and we're like, oh, I'll turn the other cheek. But it gets harder and harder the more hostile and militant the culture and people are against us and our views and who we are and what we believe, our faith and our convictions. So it's a timely word, but it's also a difficult word because our natural instinct is to strike back. Our natural instinct is to lash out. That's why he teaches it because we would just do, we would do the opposite. It's not what we would do. He has to teach us, no, don't bless and curse not. We have to be told, we have to be called out of it, but not only that, we're going to have to be graced. It's a supernatural thing he calls us to. Is all of the Christian life is we go through all of these things. It is not our natural bent. It's not the way of the flesh. It is the way of the Spirit, and only the fullness of the Spirit 
and the life of the Spirit bearing the fruits of the Spirit in us enable us to be big-hearted toward people who hate us. It's been a sad development in the Christian culture over the last couple of years to see many outrightly rejecting this teaching of Jesus. They're saying, oh, this teaching of Jesus may have been good for a period of time. That was good in the days when things were mellower. (laughs) But this isn't a time, you know, for graciousness. This is a time to fight. This is a time to rise up. And so there is this militancy rising in the Christian community, right? It's a time to get mean. There's, you know, instead of generous humility that blesses and curses not and does good, instead of that, there is a no more Mr. Nice Guy attitude that's kind of been preached in many places. It's a time for anger. It's a time to be mean and rude. It's a time to strike back. It's a time to stand up. And I'm not talking about using legitimate political means to advocate for justice and for freedom and for righteousness. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up and we shouldn't use legitimate means to fight for righteousness and justice and all those things. But it's not just what we fight for and and that we might stand in the midst of this, but it's who we are when we do it is everything. At least according to the scripture, according to Jesus, is who we are when we do it. And what we are like, what is the taste left in the world's mouth when they're done dealing with you? Do they go away thinking in the midst of it, as Peter tells us, that they should be ashamed when when they see our good deeds? Do they go away thinking what a generous and humble-hearted people? I'm afraid that's not what they think of us. First, Peter says, of Jesus that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And even as they crucified him, he prayed for his executioners. He blessed and cursed not. He prayed for those who persecuted him. Right? That he, this is the spirit of Christ in us, and it is the spirit of the gospel, a generosity of hearts, even toward our adversaries. First Peter goes on to say in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you know, because of your, your, your moral views on things like gender and sexuality, and on the, and, and the value and the sacredness of unborn life, of human life, If you should suffer because of righteousness' sake, he says, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. I sense in the church in these days a lot of fear. Troubled by the power struggles and and by the shifts in our culture. And they're nothing new in the Roman culture. Here's Paul and Peter writing in the midst of a time. They were in open persecution and He says, have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. God is sovereign. And God is good. And God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He's not lost control. We need not fear. And nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Don't lose your sanctification. And don't listen to the prophets of culture who call us to something other than Jesus calls us to. 
right? Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts as holy. Always be prepared, yes. Always be prepared to make a defense, to stand, to explain to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that you have, the reason for the values that you hold, the reason that you serve and honor him. But do it with gentleness and respect. A big-heartedness, even to those who are skeptical and even persecuting, angry, cursing. Generosity of heart, not afraid, not troubled, honoring Christ, bearing witness, but maintaining a gentleness and a respect and a Christ-likeness in the midst of it. An open-heartedness, a big-heartedness towards strangers and even toward our adversaries, but also a generous heart and empathy. And this can help us with our adversaries as we have some empathy with them. Many of those who are in that category are lost. And they have no hope. Beyond this mortal coil, they have no hope of anything. And he says that we need to have an empathy, a generosity of heart, yes, within the community. I think this is true with all human beings. What he is saying right here in verse 15, which is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, is true, something that we should practice as a community, but also with all people. It's easier in the community, isn't it, to share, we share so much together, entering into each other's joys and sorrows, going to each other's you know, baptisms and, and wedding showers and baby showers and weddings and, and funerals and weeping with those who weep and, and making meals and sending cards and so many ways that we seek to love one another, phone calls and visits and to enter into and to share. It's easier in this community. But this is an area where many of us can struggle. With jealousy at the success of others, we find ourselves focusing on ourselves. Sometimes we even struggle this way with friends. When, when friends, particularly if it's at our cost, when people have success, when people have more, not necessarily rejoicing when they rejoice, but finding ourselves holding back, finding ourselves jealous or envious or finding ourselves struggling. It's sometimes hard not to have a certain amount of inner satisfaction and gloating when somebody stumbles or falls or suffers, particularly our adversaries, the ones that we're supposed to be blessing and praying for. Usually in our heart, we're gloating whenever they stumble and fall and suffer. Proverbs twenty four seventeen says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. It's not the generous heart of the Christian to find joy in other people's suffering, even your enemies. I like the phrase, I, w- I wouldn't even wish it on my worst enemy. And that should be the Christian heart about all things. In Proverbs 17:5, he says, He who is glad at calamity, at the suffering of others, will not go unpunished. Why? Because God is not like that. He is compassionate and merciful. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in it, and neither should we. James Boyce says that there is only one way to break out of this. Sometimes this this natural way of heart that we have. We have to stop thinking of ourselves and our own interests all the time. And the only way we can do that is by a transformation accomplished in us by Jesus. 
Right? And that's the answer to everything in here that he calls us to, is it's that inner transformation by Jesus that sets our hearts free from us, from ourselves, from being full of ourselves, being full of the Spirit, and more like Jesus, responding like him in Christ-likeness. The only generous, it is only the generous heart of Christ that can set our hearts free. Not only with our brothers and sisters, but with those who don't know Jesus. Our hearts should go out to the lost. Jesus saw them and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and they're helpless. But as soon as we categorize them as our enemies, whom we got to fight, it takes on a whole different thing. Jesus says, see the lost world as harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd. And to seek to love them toward Christ by blessing and not cursing. Finally, a generous heart of humility, a generosity of heart toward strangers, and a generosity of heart toward our adversaries, and a generosity of, of heart of empathy to all people, but also then a generous heart of humility. And really, it is humility that in a humble state that we can truly rejoice when others rejoice and to love our enemies and not think of ourselves more righteous than they in the sense that whatever I am what I am by the grace of Christ but for the grace of God, there go I. There is a humility that should be in the Christian that, that we don't save ourselves. And so for those who are around us, it's just a desire that God would work and bring grace and salvation. There's a humility of heart, a generosity of heart that does not stand aloof from other people's joys and sorrows, their lostness. It cares and it enters in. It requires humility. He says that we, in verse 16, should live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own heart. To live in harmony, which, again, is the way they translate, be of the same mind, be of one mind with each other. Think in likewise way or have the same mind toward each other among yourselves. And that is the mind of Christ in the way that we Love each other. And so he's saying, basically, you guys, we should be able to get along in Christ, having that mind in us that we should not be stirring problems and insisting on our own way and pushing our own agendas, right? He says that we should have one mind uh, together. And then he says, and the way to do that is to not elevate that, my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own agenda, is what he says next, don't be haughty. When's the last time you used haughty in a sentence? That's something, oh, anyway, don't be so haughty. Just another way to say proud, arrogant. Don't be arrogant, just haughty. I haven't heard it in a while. It makes me laugh, sorry. Which simply means don't think too highly of yourselves, right? That brings us back to verse 3. We've already been here. For by the grace given to me, I say to all of you, every single Christian in this room, I say to the church, I say to you, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. But think with a sober judgment. Think of yourself in Christ, lost, a sinner, deserving of hell, and saved only by his grace. Don't be haughty. Don't think more of ourselves than we should. And he says this aligns with two things specifically. He goes on to say that we should... Be willing to associate with the lowly, and we should never, and it's interesting he puts a never in there, you know, and don't associate with the lowly and don't be wise, but it's never be wise in your own sight. God have mercy on us. 
right? God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on us because this is often where we live, wise in our own eyes. We are in love with our own opinions. We, are in, we love our opinions. We, we think we're the rightest people around. I disagree with you and you and you and you. Look at that. I'm the only right guy in the room. Right? We elevate our own thinking. We elevate our own thoughts. There's not a humility in the way that we hold our opinion. We just put up with people who don't get it. Right? What will tolerate your ignorance? Particularly on non-biblical things. Biblical things, we should be of one mind together and living in harmony. But he's talking about a radical change of heart. Right? Our natural tendency is to trust in our own rightness and our own thinking and our own opinions and, and ourselves as opposed to holding our own views with some humility and respecting and loving and listening to others. It's hard even to have a conversation about things anymore. A radical change of heart that breaks down every barrier between us. Economics and politics and race and education and whatever gifts you may have. All of these things, he says, are broken down because we have one mind together and nobody's haughty. Full of themselves and in and love with their own opinions. Galatians 5, 24-26 says this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, if we're born again by the Spirit, if we're full of the Spirit, if, we, if He lives in us every day, if we live by the Spirit, then we'll let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us be filled with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And what's the very first thing that He says coming out of that crucifixion of the flesh and living in the Spirit is let's not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Our hearts are naturally constricted and selfish and stingy and grudging, and, and full of our sense of rightness, wise in our own eyes, which we should never be, but we almost always are. And the gravity of ourself holds us back from the, the big-heartedness that God is calling us to here. Big-heartedness toward everyone, and humility is at the bottom of it. So let me just leave you with an image of the Grinch. Who stole Christmas? And you got to imagine the Grinch at the top of the hill. He's already raided Whoville, right? He's already got the Who Pudding and the Who Beast, right? And he's at the top, and he's got all this stuff, and he's got his dog Max, and he's looking down at the town with his stingy, constricted heart, wishing ill on the Who's, going to ruin their day, disgrudging. But then it says that something amazing happened. Like there was a little box around his heart. You remember that? And it was like, boing. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. Right? And his heart grew three sizes that day. Right? His heart, he went from being stingy hearted in these things to being the big hearted. Right? His, his world was changed. There was a sparkle in his eye. Like, he got on the sled, right? He went, he's heading back to Whoville. And what, did it, what was the change? It said the true meaning of Christmas came through. It doesn't say a lot about that, but you and I, when we hear that, hear a lot. The true meaning of Christmas came through. God's grace, his saving grace towards sinners. Our undeserved grace when God sent his only son, right? That we should not perish, but have an everlasting life through faith in him, right? So the 
true meaning of Christmas came through and it said he found the strength of ten Grinches plus two. That's a dozen. Right? His strength led his heart. He became big-hearted and strong in the things of grace. And he just wanted to give it all away. God is calling for a radical change of heart, for our heart to grow a few sizes. Our hearts get constricted. It's the gravity we can be stingy with. And he wants us to give it all away. Strangers, even our enemies, for those who are prospering and those who are hurting, for those who are different, for those who are lowly and marginalized, a heart big enough. God had a heart big enough that he so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he's saying we should be big hearted to set our hearts free from ourselves in, in this community and beyond this community. May God form in us humble, gentle, welcoming, gracious hearts like His. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we don't want to gather information. We don't just want to learn more facts. We want our souls to be formed and shaped into the image of what we have read and heard. According to your word, according to the character of Christ and your character, Father, would you set our hearts free from ourselves so that we may be open-hearted, big-hearted, generous with all the gifts and graces you have given to, to everyone, those we know and those we don't know, for those inside our community and those outside our community. May we be known as a people of blessing, generous heart, to your honor, to your glory, to the glory of your Son and the power of his Spirit, we pray. Amen.